Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we're going to continue in our episode uh, presenting uh, things about what a football is. (laughs) It's actually our presentation on hearsay, folks. So we've told you the definition of hearsay. We've told you a couple of questions to ask yourself when hearsay pops up. We've told you what all of the exceptions to the hearsay rule are. And now we're going to tell you the next question that you should be asking yourself in an analysis of whether something comes into evidence as hearsay or does not come into evidence. And Wade, what's our next question? Why is this a football? No. Um, (laughs) Are the best interest of justice served by its admission? Now, folks, Under the prior law, I've heard this called everything from a necessity exception to a residual exception to an emergency exception. I've heard all kind of things about this. And I'm going to be candid with you. In my humble opinion, under the prior law, the necessity exception that is here called the residual exception. And all candor has got had gotten so twisted up that it was used too easily. We allowed things in too easily. And you're going to hear in just a minute the definition of Rule 807. This is supposed to be a very rare event. And unfortunately, in my opinion, again, I think we use it too often. Yeah, I think that's right, Wade. And, and so, again... It's an exception to the rule, and, and normally you're supposed to apply those in in rare circumstances. So, so Wade's exactly right. So, so let's talk about this. OCGA section 24-8-807. It says, a statement not specifically covered by any law, but having equivalent circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness, shall not be excluded by the hearsay rule if the court determines the following things. Wade, what are those? Number one, the statement is offered as evidence of a material fact. In other words, it's got to be important. Number two, the statement is more probative on the point for which it is offered than any other evidence which the proponent can procure through reasonable efforts. And, And, And then this is the biggie. Number three, the general purpose of the rules of evidence and the interest of justice will be best served by admission of the statement into evidence. However, a statement may not be made may not may not be admitted, excuse me, under this code section unless the proponent makes it known to the adverse party sufficiently in advance of the trial or hearing to provide the adverse party with a fair opportunity to prepare to meet it, the prepare, the proponent's intention to offer the statement and the particulars of it including the name and address of the declarant. Now, Tane there's a lot there. There is. One of the things that I think is really important, though, and that I think Section 3 is intended to underscore is, if you're going to admit something under this, you need to be making some findings. You need to be going through Sections 1, 2, and 3 of this and saying, okay, I don't really see any other exception, but here are all of the reasons that I think this ought to come in and why it's a trustworthy statement and why it's appropriate to let uh, it into evidence. You know, Tane, under the old rules, the there was a lot of um, domestic violence that led to a murder. That would frequently, the, the, the necessity exception now, the residual exception, would be frequently pointed to. 
as really the only way to get it in because it wasn't then existing mental mental condition. It was really recounting something in the past that we don't usually allow hearsay to do. Hearsay is usually, the exceptions usually allow us to talk about things that are happening right now or that are so old that they're really no longer in dispute. That's right. This is one of those things where they would say, for example, the cases, the appellate cases would say, look, th- this is, this is it, it material. This is, there's nobody else better to offer it than the the victim's best friend. And it has indicia of reliability because you don't go around accusing your spouse of, of, of domestic violence or whatever the situation was, unless there's some reason for that. Now it could be rebutted, et cetera, but there has to be some reason for that. Yeah. And, and- as you can see in this last part of the statute, they've tried to add something to it to make sure that this just doesn't get used willy-nilly. And the the what they what's been added here is this notice requirement. And so there's kind of a question 7A that you should be asking in here. It's not one of the ones I put in the outline, but question 7A is when you know somebody alleges that the best interests of justice are served by the admission of this evidence, you need to say to them, okay. Well, did you give notice? And if so, when and how? Because there's a clear requirement here that notice to the opposing party that you intend to use the statement is required. So one of the things that people frequently say is 30 days, okay? How about 45? How about five minutes? And and the judge has a lot of discretion here. But it needs to be enough time that somebody could have at least planned to do something about it or call an alternative witness or file an objection or something. So, or at least I, ask the declarant a couple questions yeah. uh, on the phone or some at some point in time. Right. So, you know, assuming they're still alive. But at the same time, it's just one of those things where it's got to be a judge-based, fact-based situation, situational-based uh, circumstance. And I would just urge you, be reluctant to grant 807. If it's there, it's there. But be reluctant to grant it. Don't let the, don't let the exception swallow the rule. And I would and I would go back to what I said a minute ago, which is and be sure and make some findings of these things that are set forth in the statute. And there's plenty of cases on it. There, there are. It yeah. yeah. All right. So All right, the what's, eighth question, what's our next question? Our eighth question. We're asking ourselves in the the um, sort of the progression of dealing with an objection and hearsay is a statement that we're talking about, the statement of a child regarding sexual contact. An admission in a pleading, a confession, or a medical narrative. Now, there's a whole bunch of rules right here that that really become relevant, and you need to break the spine of the book, or well, I guess the whatever you need to scroll through the Westlaw thing on the computer. When it becomes, when you find yourself in one of these, please get this statute out and check the boxes, please. You agree? Yeah. So for yeah, oh, absolutely. And and for that reason, on some of these, uh, we've already we've already done podcasts on the specific issue, or uh, it is our intention to do a podcast on the issue. For example, OCGA section twenty four dash eight dash twenty. I'm sorry, dash eight twenty. Uh, statements by a child under the age of sixteen describing acts of sexual contact. I, I think we did a whole podcast on that, Wade. Yeah, we talked about that and how they changed some law on that. So so please go go check out that episode episode, especially if you're going to deal with criminal cases, it comes in all the time. A lot of people call this a child hearsay statute. It's going to happen a lot. Please go look it up. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. 
Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Yeah, the next one, OCGA Section 24821, are allegations or admissions made in pleadings. This comes up all the time. I mean, you know, you'll you'll have people in civil cases pull up the pleadings and say, well, they admitted right here in the complaint that that such and such happened. And and particularly in cases where those are verified pleadings, um, you know, they're they're sort of used as in a ma- as a matter of course uh, during the course of the litigation or the trial. And frankly, the this is just making sure you don't start raising a hearsay objection to something that I think most lawyers would would acknowledge is admissible, but it is an out-of-court statement. It is offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. I mean, it does fit the definition of hearsay. Now, it it, it is the, the statement of the opposing party, but neither here nor there. They have a special rule for this. It makes everybody happy. We move on. That's next right. rule. And, and the one the one caveat to that is in the next rule, which is 24.8.822, which is when an admission is allowed to be used, a party actually has a right to have the whole admission and any related conversations or statements admitted as well, just to explain context. Exactly. Um, but but really, way, quite frankly, though, it's only if 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 the statement as is would leave a false impression, right? Yes, sir. That's I mean, right. if, if it says what it says, we don't need to explain it. You can testify later, sir, but but you've got an admission. We're going to move on from did you cause the wreck? Yes, I did. Not, you know, there was a bee flying in the car and I was trying to swat it. There was, you know, yeah, you can talk about all those other things that might mitigate it, but the admission is is the admission. And we're not going to just keep letting you explain it and say we're going to have all this whole long conversation. You can testify later. Right. So the next uh, the next one that we just talked about, uh, I'm sorry, that we just named is confessions, Wade. We have a whole episode on that in this series, 823, right. 824, and 825. So it's going to be my suggestion, Tane, that we, we understand that's where the confessions uh, portion of this comes from. And we will move on through this episode past it, knowing that you really need to go listen to that one. Because I think it's going to help you a lot. That's right. So the next one is um, 826, and that is medical narratives in civil cases. And I say in civil cases, that's really important. These are not things that are just going to automatically be allowed to come in in criminal cases. It's really important to highlight this. This is a civil case rule. So, Tame, why wouldn't we allow it in a criminal case? Well, because (laughs) you, you, yeah, because justice is blind. No, is no, because you can confront witnesses. You can be you, you. You have the right to confront all the witnesses that give testimony against you. Right. Exactly. There's a confrontation clause problem in a criminal case with allowing these medical narratives because because they they contain a lot of information sometimes. And uh, you want to be able to have somebody cross examine on that. So let's talk about the the parameters of how that applies, Wade. What, what's a merit, medical narrative and how does it? How does it come? I know what it's supposed to be. I have seen lots of versions. 
Um, upon the trial of a one civil case, two mm-hmm. involving injury or disease, three any medical report in a narrative form, which has been four f- signed and five dated, six by an examining or treating licensed physician, dentist, orthodontist, podi- podiatrist, physical or occupational therapist, doctor of chiropractic, psychologist, advanced practice, registered nurse, social worker, professional counselor, or marriage or family therapist. In other words, it sounds like one of those medicines. How can you get, you know, how, how all the ways it can go bad, all the side effects that are known, and they start, like, you know, start listing <laughs> that off. It, it's basically people who treat you, though. It couldn't be some third party that just like like an expert that looked at looked at somebody else's records and gave this opinion. I call it anyone else who hates to come to court and has a really good lobby because um, <laughs> they got into the statute. They were like, yeah, we don't want to come to court. So can you just stick us in that statute and we'll just we'll just go on. But anyway, that the next the, the next requirement is what, Wade? Insofar, it, it, that sort of report is admissible and can be received in the evidence. But then seven, insofar as it purports to represent the history, examination, diagnosis, treatment, prognosis, or interpretation of tests or examinations, including the basis, therefore, by the person signing the report, the same as if that person were president trial and giving testimony as a witness. Provided, however, now, you know, we're in the third level of this, but not that, but yes, this, but not that. Provided, this is however, number eight. <laughs> yeah. Provided, however, that such report and notice of intention to introduce the report shall be first provided to the adverse party at least 60 days prior to trial. Statement of qualifications of person signing the report may be included as a part of the basis for that report. And then finally, in 10, the opinion of the person signing the report with regard to etiology of the injury or disease may be included as part of the diagnosis. Whew. They could have just come. And, 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 and I'll just tell you, I broke that down into those individual elements only because it was so confusing reading the paragraph that I thought it made a whole lot more sense to break it down into those elements. So Something else is important that comes into play when, with respect to medical narratives is the statute says any adverse party may object to the admissibility of any portion of the report other than on the ground that it is hearsay within 15 days of being provided with the report. In other words, if you've got another objection to it, it, it just because it's a mer- medical narrative, it doesn't automatically come in, but you've got to object to it. 15 days, uh, within 15 days of being provided with the report. And, and as if that weren't enough, (laughs) Wade. Yeah. Um, so any adverse party shall have the right to cross examine the person signing the report and provide rebuttal testimony. In other words, if they want to pay his or her fee to come to court and then the party tendering the report may also introduce testimony of the person signing the report for the purpose of supplementing the report or otherwise or otherwise in other words if you forgot to cover something we can call you as the as the person who offered the report to clean it up a little bit sure and then and then there's a, a another important caveat so this one is caveat 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 but the last one is the medical narrative shall be presented to the jury as depositions are presented to the jury. In other words, read to them as like you would a deposition in court. And it says, and shall not go out with the jury as documentary evidence. And why is that, Wade? Well, we have this rule that is hidden because you can't find it in the statute calling, called the continuing witness rule. 
And that is we're not going to allow certain kind of evidence to go out with the jury. It could be a part of the record so that the appellate courts can see what you're relying upon. You could argue it. You just can't send it out with the jury because it's because it continuing testimony. to testify. Mm-hmm. It, con- it continues yeah. to testify. Hence, continuing witness rule. By the way, right. if you ever get my trial outline, I've got like a whole chart of what is and is not within the continuing witness rule because I kind of boo-booed that a couple of times early in my career. <laughs> and we appreciate you putting that in the trial outline so the rest of us won't make that mistake, Wade. So authentication, juvenile statements, privileges, all that. We're going to cover that in, in, in different episodes within this series. Folks, we are trying our best to provide a evidence series. And, and frankly, it's for the judges that are going to be attending new judge orientation. But the more we talked about it, the more we realized, no, no, it's really for all of us. It just might be more um, timely for people who are going through the new judge orientation process in December, right? That's right. So folks, thanks for tuning in. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And following our football theme, two bits, four bits, six bits a dollar, all for the Good, Good Judgment podcast. Stand up and holler. Wow. That was pretty awesome. That was pretty good. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.